0: What is up asymmetry? How y'all doing? Well, with the passing of another year, this time always brings about a significant degree of introspection for me. And you know, there have been so many milestones on this journey so far. And in no way do I pretend like this is over or we we've reached the peak of anything. That 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 is the last sentiment that I want to give, but reflecting on where we're at with the knowledge of what is coming, I felt like it is appropriate to break it down for everybody who's interested or who cares or who feels a certain way about Mariah and the changes that have occurred with Mariah over the course of time. So, you know, this may be for you. It may not. Honestly, if I'm just being really transparent, uh, I'm doing this for myself. As much as anybody else, and uh, and so I'm going to walk you through the beginning. I'm going to walk you through the middle, and I'm going to walk you through what is in the present moment. You know, the end uh, to catch you up on where we're at and where we're going. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. So a lot has been a lot has been documented and said about my boneside journey. Um, you know, I knew when I was 12 years old that I was going to be a boneside professional. I I was aware of bonsai prior to making that decision. I had seen the karate kid. I loved martial arts. As a a younger kid, I didn't particularly love trees. My parents didn't garden. I used to have to pick raspberries in my grandma's vegetable garden uh, that sat on the outskirts. I I really uh, didn't find that to be very fun. It was super hot. It was dirty. Uh, Her greenhouse smelled like chemicals, and I'll never forget that really... uh, singed sensation that still exists inside of my nose whenever i go into a hot house that has you know ortho products or you know some other chemical company's products and fertilizers and all the riff-raff that goes into what we consider modern gardening but i would say is you know rapidly needs to become antiquated anyways i won't get into that but i didn't have like a familial background in horticulture i just i had this experience of I was a chubby kid, and my mom was like, "You need to be active." And uh, I really didn't like the outdoors. I was pretty happy to to hang out and like watch cartoons. I didn't have video games. I thank my parents for that. And so, you know, my mom put me in sports. She put me in soccer and baseball and football and swimming and basketball. And taekwondo was like uh, this this thing that whether I wanted to do it or not, she made me do it. And I and I and I again couldn't thank her more for it. Not because I particularly love Taekwondo. I thought Taekwondo was awesome, made me very flexible, which has served me well in life uh, from a young age. But I think the bigger thing is like Taekwondo led to discovering the Karate Kid, which so many of us probably were introduced to Bonsai and the Karate Kid. And I was interested in the martial arts. I wanted to be a ninja. Uh, I still want to be a ninja. Let's just be very clear about that. I want to be a bonsai ninja now, uh, more than an actual physical mercenary, but the idea of being a ninja very much appeals to me, and I still love throwing stars. I wanted to be a ninja. Taekwondo was what my mom told me was going to help me become a ninja. Taekwondo led me to the Karate Kid. The Karate Kid showed me bonsai, but I was still interested in Cobra Kai and, and Daniel LaRusso and the good beating the bad. You know, but in bonsai, was on sort of like the 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 perimeter. I was I was aware of it, but I wasn't like dedicated to it. I wasn't practicing it. I wasn't reading books about it. And then when I was twelve years old, every summer in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, where I grew up, we had a uh, we had a festival. It's called Strawberry Days. And my mom had been talking for the past few years about this person who comes who brings all these bonsai trees, and they're so cool, and we should check them out. And at first, I didn't really think much about it but two or three years in she said the 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 bonsai tree guys back again you should go check it out so I rode my bike down to the the summer fair probably five or six miles away from my house and uh and I pulled up into the park where there's all these vendor booths and I see people walking out of this tent with these tiny trees and pots and I was like oh, this, these these are cool this is neat I find this to be really, really interesting. And I went and I looked and he had a little sheet, like a care sheet. I read the care sheet. I was too afraid to talk to him. But the big thing that that did for me seeing that was I recognized that normal people can do this because I was reverential of Mr. Miyagi and this notion of this enlightened individual teaching somebody martial arts and also practicing bonsai as this balancing act of, you know, peace and violence that you know speaks back to the Edo period and the samurai and the warring culture and all of the traditional art forms of Japan really balancing the violence of those periods in time and so you know that registered with me and I didn't know anything about it and instead of buying a bonsai tree because I certainly didn't have the money to do that at, at 12 years old I didn't have 120 bucks which you know now seems insignificant for a bonsai tree but I realized that you know it's not and at that time it was certainly out of reach so I rode my bike to the public library and I checked out, like, I'm, I'm going to say like 12 or 13 books on bonsai. I mean, I'm talking like I'm on a, I'm on a little kid's huffy. I don't have a basket or any sort of like grocery hauling frame. I've got a small backpack, which I filled with the books. They gave me a cardboard box. I balanced them on my seat. I walked at home like three, four miles Uh, but you know, like I was in at that point, I was, I was hooked because this was available to normal people. And I had been, I looked at these books briefly at the library and I was like, this is amazing. The pictures in them black and white. I mean, we're talking like 1960s, 1970 publication of, of Japanese bonsai. There was some, there was some sunset gardening magazine, how to do bonsai books, et cetera. But I mean, it was rudimentary and I was just dialed in and there was one, image in particular uh, of uh, ancient collected juniper in Japan that it said was you know I, I want to say it 300 years old in a container or something like that and I was like, that means people have cared for it for 300 years. I, I was I, I was I was already in right and, and I knew that day this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. I knew it that day. A month later, I'm going to say like three, four weeks later, my mom was like telling all of her, you know, our family friends and stuff like Ryan has really found this to be cool because this bonsai vendor was for a small county fair in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. This gentleman from California bringing these bonsai trees and selling them was always sort of interesting, at least to my mom's group of friends. A family friend handed me a bonsai today and uh, inside of it, I opened it up just like, what is this magic? You couldn't have given me a better gift. Uh, there was the work of Mr. Masahiko Kimura. And there was this old shrubby looking juniper that he carved with a chainsaw, uh, took a jigsaw and separated the live vein from the deadwood. He put wire spines in the live vein. He raffiated it, he bent it. They painted the deadwood with some substance that turned it white, which we now know as lime sulfur. He took wire, he had apprentices. Uh, the finished shape of the tree looked like a human being to me, had a human personality. And I said, that's the guy, that's who I'm going to study with right there. I'm going to Japan and I'm going to study with that guy. And my parents were like, oh, that's so cute. You know, and, and, and their friends were like, oh, Ryan seems really interested. They didn't understand. I, it was already written in stone for me. That was what I was going to do with my life. And, and, and nothing changed from that point on, nothing changed from that point on at 12 years the only thing that there was to do was to excavate away through the center of the earth and pop out at Masahiko Kimura's garden in Saitama Prefecture, Japan. That's, as far as I was concerned, I I would have done anything to, and did do, everything I had to do to get there, right? Uh, So through high school, you know, I continued this, like, closeted bonsai practice. I had them on my back. Porch. My parents were super, uh, you know, awesome and supportive. I went and bought a bunch of trees in nursery containers, uh, made huge messes, chopped up a bunch of stuff, killed some things, and, you know, really, really tried my hand at bonsai to the best of my ability. But I was limited. There were no resources, and every every three to four months, we would drive across the continental divide 3 hours to Denver which was the closest city to where i grew up to do back to school shopping or maybe in a rare circumstance we'd get to go to a Denver Broncos game and i still have to bleed blue and orange uh at this point just because it was so ingrained in me that the Denver Broncos were our athletic team of choice anyways i digress and when we would go to Denver my dad had a had a yellow pages book And in the yellow pages, there were two listings for bonsai. And one of them, the most important one, was Colorado Bonsai Limited. That was the garden and nursery of Harold Sasaki. And um, we would go to Denver, and I would call and make sure that Harold was there. And uh, my parents would force me to be incredibly obedient and well-behaved and not complain a single ounce about everything we did that day if I wanted to have a prayer of going to see Harold. Um, And so that was really effective for them, but it was also very effective for me because it taught me some of the discipline that I needed to understand how you achieve this intangible uh, access to an art form that I didn't understand why, but it spoke to me. The first time I walked into Harold Sasaki's backyard in Denver, I was just like, what happened? Where did the old world stop and the new world begin, collected ponderosa pines, limber pines, Rocky Mountain junipers, ancient trees like I was seeing in the magazines of Japan, but they were unique and different and maybe even more radical, right? And the only thing I could think is, I want these, I want these, I wanted to possess them. And Harold said, yeah, it's, you know, they're expensive, but also it's not time. It's, you know, like sort of get your feet underneath you. And if you want to learn, you know, I I'll, I'll, I'll show you a thing or two, right? And mind you, I live 3 hours away. And um and at this time I was probably 14 15. Well, once I got my driver's license at 16, I I asked Harold if I could come study with him. He said absolutely. And I asked my parents, "Can I go?" And they said, "Wow, that's not, that's a long ways to go. It was pretty dangerous and stuff." But they were super supportive and uh, and I was a, I was I would say I was a pretty clean-upstanding kid. Uh, and so one Wednesday a month, I would leave school. When I got out at three o'clock, I would drive, uh, to Denver. I would get there around six, six thirty. Um, I would hang out with Harold until nine or nine 30. He would stay with me in his workshop. And then I would drive, I would drive home, right. And get home around midnight and Harold and I would sit in this little nook in his garage. And he had this whiteboard. And I would ask him questions and he would draw things and he would answer my questions. And we would look at Bonsai Today magazines and I would ask him about Mr. Kimura and point things out. And he would tell me what he thought. And he was experimenting with, you know, things that were cutting edge to me. And we would look at collected trees, talk about collecting. I would go out into the mountains. I would take pictures of collected trees with a soda can next to them and show Harold and ask him if he thought they were collectible. Like, he, he was really my bonsai, uh, my bonsai spirit at, 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 at that really formative age. And, you know, I had made up my mind that I was going to go study with Mr. Kamura already, but it would be tough to say that I could have done it without Harold Sasaki, because he really gave me the hope and the, um, the time and the care to foster this passion that I had. Um, and Harold said, you know, if you're going to go to college and you're thinking about you know, where you might sort of find this compatibility of bonsai and study, you should really think about going to California, you know, Harry Harrell and Ben Oakey are down in Southern California. Ted Madsen's a great teacher. Um, and, uh, and that might really be a good place for you to learn about bonsai more and get your hands dirty. Well, uh, you know, my career in basketball fell short of becoming an NBA player. That was the best thing that could happen to me because I I never had a prayer. Five foot 11 uh, with moderate jumping capacity, not extensive speed, and I could shoot mediocre. There was really no future for for basketball for me. And, you know, I had to be bludgeoned to death to recognize that I was not going to be a collegiate or NBA basketball player to the degree that I... You know, I overworked myself, tore my quadricep muscle in half, rehabbed it, came back better than ever, and then tore it again. And that was when I was just like, okay, I'm going to go full-fledged bonsai, which I already wanted to make that commitment. But, you know, basketball could have derailed that for a while, and I'm glad that it didn't. So basketball career is over. I go to see two different colleges. I I go to look at Colorado State University in Fort Collins that had a tremendous horticulture program. Because I wanted to go to Japan straight out of high school. And I had no clue how I was going to do that. And my parents were like, that's not going to happen. You don't know anything about the world. They didn't tell me that, but that's what they knew. And I'm glad that they did. They said, you need to go to college. It's going to give you uh, something to fall back on. Should bonsai not work out? Mind you, they're still thinking bonsai is not a career. This is not something that uh, is, is going to turn into anything. But it's great that he's passionate about it. It'll be a hobby for the rest of his life. Um, But they knew how crazy I was, I guess, at that point, because they watched me, you know, shoot 2000 jump shots a day for uh, several years and work myself until I basically disintegrated my quadricep muscle. So they knew that I was capable of doing uh, radical things. I don't think they knew what the bonsai thing was going to look like. Anyways, we go to see Colorado State and Fort Collins, and uh, I was noticing that the textbooks, that the students were coming in to the professor's office, that we were touring uh, had the same sort of pictures in them as like the antiquated 1960s Boneside books that I had been checking out of the public library that hadn't had new books in like three decades. And I was like, gosh, that doesn't really feel like the kind of modern cutting edge institution I want to be at. I, I, I really had like this notion that I would go to college and I would see these things that I hadn't seen before and learn these things I didn't know I didn't know. And as we left the horticulture department at CSU in this like tour group of, you know, people deciding whether, you know, they wanted their kids and their kids wanted to go to school in Fort Collins, car drove by and this person stuck their head out the window, like half their body out the window, very dangerous for sure. Uh, but as a college student made total sense and they said, don't ever go here. this place. And as the car drove away, it was just like this long emphasis on the U of sucks. And, uh, and that's pretty much how I I left experience thinking as I was like, all right, this isn't for me. This isn't my place. Uh, I love Colorado. Uh, the Eastern slope was never a place for me. Um, big fish in a small pond growing up in a small town. And that was a big pond that wasn't very beautiful uh with very not not as clear a water as I was looking for. So I had a family friend that was going to school uh in San Luis Obispo. He says amazing. My dad said you should go check it out. It just happened Cal Poly Slow had like one of the best horticulture departments in the country at that time as an undergrad. Uh I flew into California on a tiny twin tro- twin prop plane. I flew into San Luis Obispo on a tiny twin prop plane and the hills around it were bright green. It looked like Super Mario Land, and I still, to this day, do believe if you climb Bishop's Peak in San Luis Obispo, California, and you look at the landscape, the creators of Super Mario Land had to have been there to build that video game. I I completely and totally, without any... All kidding aside, that's where Super Mario Land was, was conceptualized. I guarantee it. Anyways, um... I thought it was magic from the very beginning. Emerald Hills and the horticulture department, greenhouses, nursery production. Professors were awesome. Uh, campus was amazing. I saw freedom. I saw the Pacific coastline. I saw coastal hills. I saw a future for myself. Um, it was the only college that I applied to. And I got in on early admission. Boom. I'm out. Right? Um, and so when I when I got to school in California it was just like all right where are we going first I had already declared my major I started my major courses the first quarter of my freshman year I had three primary horticulture courses horticulture one, uh, 121 botany 321 uh and plant science uh 121 and I was just like this this is exactly exactly what I wanted intense rigorous knowledge of plants, and I just went deeper. And I had a great friend uh, and a college roommate who grew up in Placerville, California, which is of significance if you ever read any of the Boneside Today magazines, because the back cover of Boneside Today was the Shanty Bithy Nursery in Connecticut. And that place looked like heaven on earth it was utopia but when you opened up that back cover the inside of that back cover uh was typically eldorado bonsai and eldorado bonsai was a place of Satsuki azaleas it was a place of tatumori gondo the master from japan teaching courses with an educational structure that nobody in north america had ever applied to bonsai it was it was access to the most intense bonsai information And in my first uh, experience at Cal Poly, I met RJ Hosking, who just so happened to to, uh, be the son of a nurseryman who had a nursery in Placerville. And RJ had worked and studied at Eldorado Bonsai and was equally as crazy about bonsai as I was. And so we worked with the horticulture department. They had a small fledgling bonsai collection that was completely neglected. We put our trees up in a locked facility. We took care of their bonsai collection. They had a ton of bonsai tools that we were able to take on ownership of and use. Over the, my over my time at Cal Poly, like, I couldn't have found a better fit. Cal Poly um, had the opportunity to fund student-developed Enterprise projects. I wrote a business plan. RJ and I had a bonsai business while we were in school there, which gave us money, gave us exposure. Uh, Even to this day, I still meet people that got into bonsai, taking their kid to Cal Poly, finding us selling bonsai at the flower shop up on the hill, uh, and they're still doing bonsai and they still study with Mirai. It's awesome. It was awesome, you know. But in the in the interim phases of my education, studying all of this horticulture, I was also smacked dab in the middle of the Los Angeles bonsai community and John Naka was still alive and Ben Oki was crushing at the Huntington and Harry Harrell was there and Moss and Gary Ishii were, uh, were, were doing their thing. Um, the Yamaguchi nursery was full power. Roy Nagatoshi's facility just blew my mind, right? Grafted California junipers. I saw trees that resembled you know, the trees I'd seen in in Japanese magazines. And if you went north to San Francisco, you know, Placerville was a six-hour drive from Slow, and RJ and I would do that probably once a month. But we would go to the Bay Area, we'd go to Lone Pine, uh, where the prices were growing, the best black pines in the country. Um, We would, you know, step into clubs like Midori Bonsai in San Jose where I met Doug Phillips and Larry White and some really uh, incredible people. We'd go to club shows in the city. I walked through Chinatown one day in San Francisco and stumbled a- a- across two incredibly, incredibly old uh, grafted California junipers with, with uh, shimpaku foliage that were uh, being auctioned off for a Chinese education foundation they had been in there for a month nobody had bought them i walked in bought them bought, bought both of them for 200 bucks and they were just the greatest thing that i would ever seen i mean california at that time and masi Mizumi was still you know really 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 influential in the bay area collection north was was just kind of firing up it was it was it, it was it was nirvana it was utopia as far as like a young budding boneside practitioner who had grown up hungry, not having the resources. And it just further reinforced that I needed to go to Japan. Well, having met Benoki, you know, on one trip down to the Huntington and having talked to Ted Madsen, who I later found out, you know, Harold Sasaki had sort of reached out to Ted and said, Hey, take this kid under your wing. And Ted said, do you want to come and be in a study group? And I said, absolutely. Uh, oh, and Johnny Uchida used to give us a lot of love to, uh, rest in peace, Johnny. But, you know, I started gravitating more towards Los Angeles. I would work with Ben at the Huntington volunteer. My time, Ben started, uh, allowing me to come into his backyard and work on his own trees. Um, and you know, I was doing menial stuff. I was helping pulling weeds, washing deadwood, et cetera. And he said, you know, if you really want to do bonsai and you really want to study with Mr. Kamura, I'll take you to Japan. And I said, oh, I'm in, let's go, let's go. I told my parents uh and the winter quarter of my sophomore year of college uh I I worked all summer saved up enough money and got into Benoki's tour to go to Japan to meet Mr. Kimura. I took the quarter off school, uh worked, you know, kind of continuously worked on my bonsai continuously but just just worked to be able to afford the trip and life in general and um and went to Japan with Benoki. And the second day, you know, totally different world. First time I've been, uh, not out of the country, but first time I've been in such a foreign place where the language was different. The, the, the lettering was different. The culture was so different. And it was just like this, it was, it was like, it would have been like being in Blade Runner, you know, with Harrison Ford. It was like, I w- I could have been in outer space. This may have well have been Mars, you know, be- because I was just unaware of this world. Second day we're there, we go to see Mr. Kimura, and, uh, and the thing that struck me, we walked into the garden. There's a large group of people. Mr. Kamura knows nothing about any of us, except for Ben Oki, who he had a relationship with, you know, there's apprentices running everywhere. Um, the thing that struck me was when I met Mr. Kamura. the, the power of his presence, not, he didn't do anything. He was just standing there. just being a normal dude, right? The power of his presence for even an unknowing individual is undeniable. Undeniable. Still to this day, I'm going to say Mr. Kamura is the most powerful individual that I've ever been in a room with. And I've, you know, I've had the fortunate opportunity to meet a lot of really uh, talented and uh, celebrated people. I've never met anybody with the kind of power, the kind of force of energy that Mr. Kimura had. So we looked around his garden, and he said he had a uh, a kimboem photo shoot happening in the back, and we got to go to the back of his garden. Which Mister, which Benoki told me that never happens, right? And so we went into the back, and here's this, you know, triple the size universe of bonsai greenhouse. There's chairs setting everywhere. We walk in there. There's like a like a, a a thousand year old spruce. Uh, that they're restyling for Kimbone And Taiga Arushabata is assisting Mr. Kamura, And I'm just watching him hand Mr. Kamura these tools. Uh, Mr. Kamura doesn't have to ask. He puts his hand out. Arushabata's son puts the tool in his hand. He needs wire. Arushabata's son's already got the correct gauge. He points at the length. Arushabata's son cuts it. Sometimes he doesn't even point. Arushabata's son cuts the length of the wire. It's perfect. You know, I just I, I watched this synchronized existence of this pupil and and his master, and I was like, Yeah, mm-hmm. Yep. This makes complete sense. This is exactly what I want. This is what I'm looking for. And so everybody went back up front to drink tea and, you know, engage with talking with Mr. Kimura a little bit and into, to enjoy sort of the formalities of Japanese hospitality. I stayed back in the back watching son Wire this spruce. And he started speaking English to me, and he said, "So you want to be an apprentice?" And had told Mr. Kamura, "I said, absolutely, I do." And he said, "You really don't know what you're asking for. This is this is gonna this is tough. This is tough. It's for a foreigner. It's like really tough." And I was like, "Okay, all right. Well, I it's what I want to do, you know." And uh, I left, and I'm sure he th- thought I'll probably never see you again, right? go back up to the front. everybody's leaving. you know, Benoki pulls me aside with Mr. Kamura and said this young man wants to study with you. Mr. Kamura kind of laughed. Uh, I had no idea what he said, but basically uh, what I you know later learned he said was that's uh, pretty much impossible but if he thinks he really wants to do it, he should get here as soon as he possibly can. And as we got back on the bus, Benoki just told me, he said, hey, if you want to come and you want to do this, finish school. As quickly as you possibly can. And I said, did he say I can come? And he said, no, he didn't say you could come. He said, if you have a chance, you finish school as quickly as you possibly can. <sighs> right? The rest of Japan, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I could have gone home right then and there. I had everything that I needed. The reason I went, I got it. Right? We saw the rest of Japan, went down to Daisui Iwasaki's. I tried sushi, didn't really like it, but that was the beginning of my sushi thing. Cause I was like, it was okay. It wasn't as disgusting. Thought away. You know, I started Anyways. I didn't care. I That's where I was, what I got. That's what I wanted. Came back to the United States spring quarter of my sophomore year. I took 27 units, which is, uh, up to that point, I had maxed out at like 14, 15 units. So I was almost double course load. I doubled up my course load and I never took less than 27 units until I graduated. And I graduated, uh, two and a half years later, um, and over the course of that time, you know, I started writing Mr. Kimura letters, uh, thanking him for hosting us, letting him know I was sincere about apprenticing. And every month I would send him another letter, just sort of staying in touch. I was studying Japanese. Uh, I had a really good friend who was a Japanese tutor that helped me with the letters, helped me read, uh, Japanese a little bit better. Didn't hear from Mr. Kimura, um, or for, near, for nearly two years. Yeah, for nearly two years. I wrote them um, pretty much a letter a month for two years. And one month before I graduated, I got a letter back. I got a letter back that said, um, yeah, this is going to be really challenging. Uh, don't expect to stay, but you're welcome to come and you can stop writing letters. And I was off to Japan. Moved home for a month uh, took off to Japan in August of 2004 and was super excited Now you know my apprenticeship in Japan that's that's kind of a whole other story uh, but it was easily the most powerful experience of my life and you know someday I might talk about that more it's such a it's such a a confusing it's a really confusing. Part of life, right? Because he, he, you know, Mister Kremora was a, was like a god to me. He, I I, I did, dedicated my life to going to study with Mister Camaro from when I was twelve. I charted a path to get to his garden to apprentice with him, with with that individual, and uh, it did not disappoint, right? Like most powerful energy I've ever experienced from an individual. First time I met him, that never changed. That still to this day has not changed. Uh, brilliance in every facet, a genius across the board, creatively, as well as technically. Phenomenal experience filled with a lot of hardship, right? And there was this several critical moments in my apprenticeship, but one critical moment, I would say it was the turning point of my apprenticeship where there was a low sink outside of the workshop and we always had to wash all the rags and keep them impeccably white, despite the fact that we were working on bonsai trees and our fingers were black from the, you know, the pine pitch and the, and the copper wire constantly. So as a youngest apprentice, you're cleaning toilets, you're cleaning workshops, you're washing rags. Well, you never stop washing rags. And I had committed a series of unacceptable mistakes, right? I dropped the ball as an apprentice multiple times. And there was this electrical conduit that ran in front of the sink that I was washing rags at as I had been sort of ostracized from the workshop for having done a less than stellar job on several very significant things. I think to the tune of Tearing a defining branch off of a Kokfu spruce during repotting, followed by uh, having failed to protect a uh, Japanese uh, holly in full berry. That was also a Kokfu display tree that birds ate all the berries off of. After those two back-to-back events, I was I was not in good standing. And I was washing the rags and it was winter time and the water's, you know, super freaking frigid cold and there's really nowhere for me to go, you know, and this conduit that's across the wall in front of the sink had this word on it. And the the word was uh, Mirai, Mirai. I'd been looking at that word and wondering about that word for like, I think that was my third year as an apprentice and never knew what it meant. I had no clue what it meant. And I realized that that moment, the position that I was in was my own doing. It was my own negligence of being a dedicated student. I had asked for this dream. I had pursued it with all of my might. Uh, I had obtained an apprenticeship and I was in the garden of the, the most significant bonsai artist the world has ever seen. And I was dropping them all. You know, I was failing um, because I wasn't taking the same initiative. It was like I had accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. I had gotten there, but that wasn't the end of the story. That was, that wasn't even the story. That was the beginning of the story. And I went home that night and I looked up the meaning of Mirai, the unobtainable future ever out of reach, distant and always changing. Oh, and it led me down this path over the next two weeks because I was in deep shit for a long time, right? When you get in trouble like that, you're in trouble for a long time. Uh, it led me down this path over the next two weeks of really dedicating myself to thinking, why am I here and what am I doing? And what am I, what am I gonna do with this? You know, my parents are like, yeah, I guess go to Japan and study bonsai. They didn't think you would make it that far. I told them it would be at least five years, if not six. And they thought that I might be gone for two or three, right? Like they were like, this isn't, you know, I think everybody kind of felt like this isn't necessarily real, right? Like it's happening, but it's not real or like to what degree, to what extent? And I started thinking, you know, when I'm done here, what is bonsai in the United States? What is, um, what led me to need to come here that I couldn't get there? And what do I want to do with this tremendous gift I've been given, I've been accepted into this rare domain and I'm fucking up, but I, I can fix that. I can change the course and my trajectory right now if I want to. What is the reason? What is the motivation? What is that driving factor that, that I personally needed to elevate my level, right? Getting there drove me to that point. Once I was there, what drove me to get better? And this word Mirai kept cycling through my head, this distant future, this unobtainable future. And I started recognizing and applying the fact that I hadn't been looking at that definition, even though I'd been there, I hadn't been taking the initiative that I was there for my future. I was washing rags for my future. I was studying with this master for my future. I was dedicating myself for my future. And the, the, the switch flipped. And you know, there were a lot of lessons about being an apprentice at the time that I learned. Uh, but one of the things that I really took to heart is saying you're going to make a change is not very valuable. Making a change doesn't need to be said. And instead of going and apologizing or doing anything of that nature, I changed. I just changed. Dedicated. First person there, last person gone. He needed something. It was already there. There was a problem. I stopped it before it started. And I just started seeing my skill set skyrocket and grow. And I started piecing together this vision of building a garden that had the highest quality material. I used to collect back in college, Harold, or back in high school, Harold taught me. In college, I spent a lot of time in the Sierras. I knew what North American material had to offer. I knew the potential of bonsai in the Western world at a very young age. Uh, And so I started thinking about this garden filled with Yamadori, uh, pushing the level with the technique and artistry that I was learning. And I started recognizing, well, you can't just stop at a tree. The tree needs a ceramic vessel and these are different trees than Japanese trees and there are North American ceramicists. can we cultivate a higher level of ceramics and then those ceramics need to sit on a stand and Mr. Kimura had an entire room filled with stands for the kokufu you know for the kokufu exhibition 100 plus trees that sometimes our garden would deliver to the kokufu 100 plus stands you know it means you need 2 to 300 stands to meet the Correct requirements of the hundred you're going to actually use? Can we foster stand makers? And how do you drive this economy? You have to have a show. The coke Food drove the economy. The Ginkgo Awards in Europe drove the economy. You have to have a show, a show like nobody's ever seen before. And so I had conceptualized the garden at Mirai. I knew I was going to be teaching students, and I knew that I needed. To orchestrate a show. So I came back to the United States. Now the common model of bonsai professionalism in the Western world, whether it be Europe or North America, was essentially a traveling, uh, I would say a traveling entertainer, right? You, uh, If you speak well publicly, you get up on stage, you can talk your way to success. If you're good at bonsai and you can talk, then you're really going to have some success. And you have this moment when you come out of an apprenticeship where you've got like a spark to ignite a fire and that fire might burn out on the paper before it ever lights the wood. Or you can use that spark to light the paper that then starts a deep, hot, embered fire that you can keep going for as long as you have the fuel to sustain it. Well, I wanted to be a burning, hot, deep bed of coals that had the capacity to see what I could accomplish as a bonsai practitioner and, and artist. And here now that the word artist enters the conversation. I wanted to see what I could accomplish as an artist over a prolonged career. And it was very obvious to me that The traveling vagabond lifestyle of a professional in the Western world did not build a garden that allowed you to horticulturally master the care of the trees like they did in Japan or to artistically evolve your approach beyond the demonstration scene, uh, like the hours spent in the workshop in Japan, and to create the kind of refinement through all of the stages across all of the species that the timeless dedication of your own workshop, your own garden under your own control gives you the capacity to create. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna travel for 18 months. And in that 18 months, I'm gonna go as hard as I possibly can. I'm gonna build my garden. Hopefully I'll be able to create a school. uh, And that's how I'm gonna transition into this sort of dream that I've formed of Mirai. And I started traveling. And I traveled a lot. I traveled uh, over 290 days a year. I think one year I traveled 310 of the 365 days. And 12 months came, and I recognized, "Okay, I'm gonna have to do it for a little bit longer." And 18 months came, and I recognized I was gonna have to do a little bit longer. And 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 24 months came, and I recognized I was, I was gonna have to do it longer. And once 30 months came, I, I I was I was tapped out. I was tapped out. I had nothing left to give. You know, I would get up and give a demonstration. And I had styled the same tree I've styled the past two demonstrations because when you inject so much creative energy into an endeavor, you only have a finite amount of that energy. And when that well runs dry, it's very difficult to restock. It's very, very difficult to restock. You've got to constantly be getting the return of the energy you invest and only the tree can give that back. And so you go here and you style a tree and you never see it again. You go here, you style a tree and you never see it again. It, it it was it was not a lifestyle that i was going to thrive at and it was not a lifestyle that had bred the capacity to create world class bonsai and do justice to north american native material or european ma- material so uh, i had started teaching classes the second year of marai right i had i, I the first year i built the garden remodeled my house very poorly mind you uh, and turned a pole barn into a workshop. And 2011, I started, I started, uh, teaching students and, you know, my first lecture in a class at Marai lasted about 20 minutes on pines and design. And then for the next, uh, you know, three days, um, I had to fill the empty airspace and I only had three students cause nobody knew what the heck they were getting into. I picked up every student at the airport. I drove them to Mirai. They slept on air mattresses in my house. Uh, I made breakfast, lunch, and dinner, coffee. We probably drank too much beer. Uh, I would say, actually, we definitely drank too much beer. We stayed up way too late. uh, And by the end of the third day, we were all crushed. I drove them to the airport and then got on a plane the next day and traveled somewhere to continue my professional activities while I built the garden. Well, 2011, you know, I've got a handful of students. 2012, uh, most of the classes are are filled. 2013, Mariah's educational courses are filled and, and there's a waiting list. And that was right at the time where I was totally tapped. Shut her down. I stopped traveling. And the transition out of travel was really brutal. It was really tough because you form relationships, right? The 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 tree is the great connector. Whether you say the tree is the great connector of man to land, or you say the tree is the great connector of one human being to another through this common ground, the tree is the great connector. But the human relationships are what make bonsai so rich, right? And it's important that we hold on to that because this is going to make a lot of sense as I continue. People were hurt you know, because I was, I was leaving them. I would we'd started projects. I, you know, we'd, we, we, we were building and the, 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 and there, and there's familiarity and there's comfort and there's, and there's progress and, and things were getting better for students and study groups that I was working with. And then suddenly I'm, I'm no longer going to be coming, you know, but please come and study with me, you know, and some people did, but most people didn't or couldn't. And I was really sad, uh, about that you know, but I had to continue. I had to continue to keep in mind that I've got it. If you don't put your own gas mask or your own oxygen mask on first, you can't help anybody else, right? You can help until your well is dry and then you're a shell of yourself and you have nothing left to give. And I needed to stop traveling because my bonsai was, was really suffering. My skills, my ability, my inspiration, my desire to do it was really suffering. And that's, I'd gone through too much, and I knew that the well, although dry, could be restocked because I sacrificed so much of my life for six years to go to Japan and learn this tremendous craft. So we dedicated to classes on site and students coming, and the lectures improved, and the knowledge improved, and the garden improved, and the trees improved. 2013 was a massive growth year. 2014, the flicker of the Artisan's Cup started you know, in 2015, I had a core of students. We had created badass trees. Ron Lang was was ramped up and in full glory. Austin Heitzman was building stands nobody had ever seen before. Randy Knight was the man of the hour, just driving it home. Telperian Farms was you know on fire with what they'd been growing. I mean, it was really it was really a golden era of bonsai in North America and. You know, that Los Angeles community had lost John Naka and was struggling without their leader. The Bay Area, you know, was so informed by Kathy, was so informed by Boone, and was still very much alive. But you felt a shift of momentum to Michael Hagedorn, uh, the Pacific Bonsai Museum, and Dave DeGroote and everything he was doing, myself being here, Randy being here, Austin being here, Jan Rentonar being here you know, you had like this, this epicenter of people that were breaking new ground in bone science. Not that anybody hadn't done it before. It just looked differently this time. It was, it was a modern flair. You had Shinji Suzuki's techniques, you know, being taught and actualized by Michael. You had Mr. Kimura's techniques being taught and actualized at Mirai. And, you know, through the, the, the first few years post-apprenticeship, getting exposure to the continent of North America and Europe and seeing the greater amount of old growth trees, native uh, landscapes and spaces, and my experiences post-apprenticeship of just recognizing, you know, I'm not Japanese, even though I experienced that. And I tried to uphold the integrity of Mr. Komura's garden while I was the lead apprentice there to the best of my capacity as a foreigner. And I really did feel like I integrated and understood when I left, I was a foreigner again. And that really pushed me in the direction of not thinking how can I make things like Mr. Kimura really pushed it in the direction of how can I make things the way I want to make them? And, you know, beyond that, Mr. Kimura had already told me his expectation, which was, Hey, when you leave here, different weather, different location, different culture, different species, you got, you got to figure this out. And he and he really kind of challenged me. He said, I have not had a student go their own way yet. Maybe you'll find that way, you know? And it was just like, again, I I knew I wanted to build the garden, but this was like another purpose. This was like another trajectory on top of that of like, okay, not only this garden, but I also have to, I, I need to go my own way aesthetically. I need to go my own way artistically. I need to go my own way in the way that I make a living as a bonsai professional, because you know, let's be really honest here. I wanted to be working on bonsai trees all day. The same as I was during my apprenticeship, the same as I saw Mr. Kimura doing. But the Japanese bonsai community exists on the patron model. They've got clients that pay bonsai masters for the pinnacle of their artistry and the continued care of these trees. In North America, the bonsai economy, the bonsai community, the bonsai mentality in the early and mid, you know, early 2000s, the teens was we want to do it ourselves, a hobbyist mentality. And still to this day, I would say the general trend is people want to do it themselves themselves totally respect it and understand it entirely so did i that's why i went to japan right but in order to for a bonsai professional to make a living you do have to have patrons you've got to have people that are buying the pinnacle of your work and that only motivates you to push farther in the same way that buying randy knight's best material motivated him to find better the same way as being willing to pay the price for ron lang's best work motivated him to make better work you know it's like that motivation, that that support is what generated that motivation. Mirai became that support network for the highest quality of bonsai, not only in North America, but became a little bit of a beacon of light for the Western world in general in terms of bonsai across Europe, et cetera, you know. And that was really, really inspiring and I and, and, and I wanted to be the one making the trees, but that it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time because. had these talented students we needed to execute this exhibition this golden era was reaching its capstone 2015 we partnered with skylab architecture to create an environment uh an architectural metaphor of the north american forest seeing light trickling through these slats of these structures that tessellate as a parallelogram and occupy an art space in a way that creates a narrative context and dialogue that had not been to that point to the best of my knowledge ever done before and it was ambition on a level that I I I have never you know I mean I I take that back you know I even now I say I've never but you know obtaining my apprenticeship was that ambition starting Mariah was that ambition it was let's just say it was another extension of my ambition and dedication to this this life right that at 12 years old I committed to um and if I said the artisans cup uh if i if if i if I said the artisans cup was fun I would be totally lying if I said the artisans cup was worth it uh I would tomorrow question that I think it's probably was a make or break moment for a lot of a lot of things in life and bonsai and uh you know understanding expenditure of energy and all of the potential outcomes i almost lost my almost lost my house almost lost my garden to the artisan's cup i mean it really demanded everything I leveraged everything to do that show but I believed I believed in that show I believed in its purpose to drive bonsai in North America forward uh and I still think to this day and I'm going to come back to this in a moment I still think to this day There are seminal moments that occur in every endeavor that whether remembered or forgotten changed the trajectory of things forever. And I think that that show really had a profound impact uh, on bonsai in North America, just as a reference for what was possible for what was possible. Now, when I was building the garden in. 2010, 2011, 2012, I rapidly outgrew the first workshop that I had built, which was just like a repurposed pole barn. And I started building uh, in the middle of 2012, what is currently uh, referred to at Marai as the barn. Started building the barn, not because I needed a new workshop, right? Or wanted a new workshop necessarily. I love that small space that we had the bonsai commune in, right? And great trees were created. Uh, iconic trees were created there. Great relationships were formed that still exist to this day. But I would started trying to film bonsai DVDs and Steve Silesian was just a monumental figure uh, who was a student at Mirai at the time, had experience in film, was a professional skateboarder, uh, knew what it took to film things and was willing to help me, right? He was going to film these things, he was going to help me make some DVDs. Other Boneside professionals had made DVDs. I was so terrible on camera, it was uh, an impossibility to think that this was actually going to happen. And we realized through trying to film in the workshop that it was not going to be possible. It's too small. It was too small, right? And photography was impossible. Uh, filming was impossible. So the the primary reason that I built the barn was because I knew, hey, listen, I, 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 I'm only one person. I can only teach this many people, but there's a whole world out there that If I wanted to do bonsai and I couldn't have gone to Japan, maybe I I had kids, I had a career, I had a fear of getting on a plane, whatever reason, I would not have been able to access this magical information that I'm going to tell you, it was a struggle to obtain, right? It took a lot of dedication as apprentice to obtain. I would not have had that opportunity, but I would have wanted it and other people wanted it that couldn't apprentice. So, could we democratize this information beyond just the students that have the resources and time and lifestyle to come and study at Mirai? Could we democratize the information, right? And I, and I had a much more selfish reason to want to democratize the information, right? Make it available to everyone, freely available, not and not freely available because I still have to make a living. You got to put your oxygen mask on. Lights can't stay on at Mirai. Guess what? Nobody gets the information that I know. So we got, I want to continue to understand there's means by which this all occurs. Okay. So when we were building the barn, I started looking into internet, which I had like, uh, uh you know, uh, satellite internet up, up at the garden at Mirai to that point. And, uh, it's actually the utility company. There was, uh, like an internet deadline at the base of the driveway. My driveway happens to be like four or 500 yards long. I mean, it's a, freaking long driveway, straight uphill. They said, well, if you'll buy two different internet services that cost an ungodly amount of money uh, and you'll pay for the installation, we'll do it. Otherwise, either of those two things, you won't pay or you won't buy these services, we won't do it. So I said, yeah, okay. Uh, So I trenched the entire length of the driveway myself, laid the conduit, Uh, trenched all the way to the barn um, that was just a foundation at the time, laid the conduit, and had fiber optic cable run into the building so that we could potentially one day in the very distant future stream education out of the studio at Mirai. And I saw the opportunity for it, and I knew it was a means to democratize the information but selfishly, what I really wanted to do was to give everybody a homogenous knowledge of technique and see how that impacted the artistry and the quality of bonsai universally. That was the motivation for Mirai Live. Now, I didn't know it was Mirai Live at the time. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I just knew filming DVDs was not going to be a model that sustained itself. It was antiquated already in in, in 2010 and 11. Fast forward... Post Artisans Cup, faking it until faking it until you make it is a part of any ambitious individual's unbreakable unbreakable spirit. You know that was stressful because the Artisans Cup, I had to leverage the house and the garden to afford it, and I was riddled with debt from the Artisans Cup, riddled with debt, and. I really didn't know how I was going to recover from that because I had the limit of my physical capacity, but I was under tremendous stress, tremendous stress, trying to figure out how to keep the lights on and keep things moving forward. And I had tremendous students and this call to action had come and gone, you know, this call to action that had built up this momentum and Randy Knight was at his pinnacle and Ron Lang was at its pinnacle and Austin Heights was at his pinnacle and we all congregated there and the artisan's cup happened and then everybody went their separate way. And it was like, Ooh, what, what happens next? You know, and I didn't have an answer for that. I didn't, I didn't know, but I, but I knew how to do bonsai and people still wanted to learn bonsai. And I had laid this infrastructure long ago that was still sitting there in place, still paying for internet I didn't use, by the way. And so I started thinking, conceptualizing, website needed to be changed. I started working with talented designers that I was familiar with and I told them, I think the future of this whole thing is like a comprehensive Is a comprehensive bonsai education online i think that's i think that's where i'll have the capacity to regain the freedom to be an artist and focus on the creation of bonsai on my on my under my own hands and to push the envelope of my own artistry but share it with other people right open the door so i conceptualized a multi-staged approach and the lowest hanging fruit that was capable of generating the content that you need to educate people that was also capable of scaling and was also capable of creating some educational economy was a live stream doing bonsai work under my own power in my own studio but relaying this to the rest of the world and so i started figuring out how do you live stream at this point in time, nobody was live streaming when we launched Mirai live. I believe it was March, uh, March, March 12th, March 15th, March 17th, March maybe. Yeah. March 12th, March 15th of 2017. We live streamed from a brewery in Portland to celebrate the accomplishment. I don't know anybody else. I don't know another company that was dependably live streaming in the world at that point in time. And I'm not saying that they weren't, but I didn't know of them. I knew Facebook's live stream didn't work. I knew Instagram didn't have live streams. I didn't know anybody that was live streaming. And so we started this building process of streaming education, showing people a higher level of bonsai uh, knowledge because it was under the same conditions as I had learned bonsai. I was watching Mr. Kimura at the pinnacle of his capacity Execute at the highest level. That access to that level is what raises your understanding of what's possible. It shows you the fluency of the action to aspire to. And when you see it, it looks easy. And then you do it and you fumble and you're like, oh my gosh, I now get it. This is hard. It's going to take some work. Building knowledge, building knowledge. But the important thing to understand here is this was just one part of a vision that I'd conceptualized as my next step, right? This was just the first part. This was the building part. 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Seven years, seven years we've been live streaming. That is what it has taken to develop the next steps of the greater plan of what was conceptualized and put in place 7 years ago which is a comprehensive education of bonsai that gives accessibility to everybody democratizes the information and over the course of that time I've learned a lot we know so much more so the byproduct of that experience of the lowest hanging fruit creating the information that we have to share that that the live stream was not the product Most people are thinking the live stream is the product. Mariah Live was not the product. Mariah Live was the method. It was the vehicle. And along the way, you start to recognize how complex this system is. And you start to recognize how complex this system is to teach. And you start to develop tools to do that. You start to develop ideas. You expand your capacity. And I started to recognize, oh, people want a calendar, To be able to understand when they're supposed to do what, how, and why. But that is too complicated. If I drew a calendar, it would blow people's minds. Even to draw it for myself, it's utterly confusing and functionless. And there's this recognition as bonsai practitioners that you don't know what you don't know unless somebody tells you that you need to know it, right? Even the most advanced bonsai practitioners don't know what they don't know until they're told they need to know. And so there became this... Awareness that the Mariah Academy, a comprehensive education that combines editorial, scientific, artistic, technical processes over the course of time that identify primary, secondary, tertiary stages of development that allow you to build a bonsai the horticulture that allows you to take care of that bonsai, the artistic principles that allow you to style that bonsai, evolve that bonsai, the conceptual implications that allow you to understand its continued direction, evolve it over the course of time, represent nature in miniature, aspire to and know the process of how you make world-class bonsai. That has never existed in the history of the world. No single person has ever laid all of that out. It's never been done until now, until right now, right now. (laughs) Wow. That's a journey that started when I was 12 years old that has taken me through every corner of the world, every up and down, not every, but most of the up and downs a human being can experience in that process through walking the line of failure or success, survival or death. You know, and the motivation through this whole thing is the same motivation that drives all of us. This intangible quality of the relationship that we form with this silent living organism that teaches us more than we ever could have learned without it, right? The tree, the form of the tree, the tree. And how many more people and how much better would the world be if everybody was able to build a relationship with a tree, and maybe bonsai is not the way for everybody, but maybe bonsai is a metaphor. Maybe it's a connector. Maybe it's a digestible, consumptive, mm, I'm going to say, maybe it's a digestible way to understand our role in the greater ecosystem on earth. Regardless, democratizing the information through the creation of the Mariah Academy gives the most advanced practitioner, every single tool they need to elevate their bonsai beyond what they think is possible, while also meeting somebody who's never touched bonsai before but has that slight flicker of a spark that could ignite the fire, that could start the wood that builds the bed of coals, of the next greatest artist the world has ever seen in the realm of bonsai. The Mariah Academy is comprehensive in tracking your progress. It tells you what you need to know and what you need to do, when you need to do it, according to the environment that you live in and its climactic conditions. And the natural questions that are going to arise when you start to perform these things trigger your access and your involvement in the academy, where we answer the why and take you a little bit deeper and build your knowledge a little bit more in digestible chunks that continue to move you forward in this journey of knowledge that has taken a long time to understand how we handle this valuable, delicate information. And through this process of having daily reminders that you can tap into whenever you want and calendar activities that relate directly to the trees that you're tracking through your own album, that also has the ability to funnel and process nutritional recommendations that elevate the health of your tree, while also being productive for the environment at large, and pointing you in the direction of answering the why and taking you to a depth of knowledge, breaking it down both academically as well as visually, technically, and horticulturally, that accesses and opens new doors for you to explore as a bonsai practitioner. It took from the time I was 12 till I was 42 to make this happen. That's a lifetime's worth of work, and still I'll tell you we're only getting started. Now, the on-site education at Marai, this human relationship that I referred to, is still at the very epicenter and backbone of what we do. We took this concept of fundamental ideas that guide and inform every other aspect of what you do to a bonsai tree. We called them the defining concept courses, and in 2011. I think I had six or seven students total studying at Mariah in the first year of defining concept courses. We met three times a year during the critical points where you needed to perform actions on pines, junipers, elongating species. We developed the multi-flush pine vernacular and calendar. We developed the short needle, single flush pine vernacular and calendar. The long needle, single flush pine vernacular and calendar. We created elongating species to summarize this vascularly empowered genre of trees. We broke it into coastal and alpine over the course of the next 12 years. And once we had processed so many students through every single round of each of these courses teaching the fundamentals of repotting and soils and top dressing, chopsticks and wiring, same angle, same spacing, no gaps, structural, secondary, tertiary, primary stages of design, secondary stages of scaffolding, tertiary stages of ramification. And we started implementing intensive study, right? Where you come for five days and we dig into more complex work. We did intensive studies and the goal of Mirai's education on site was always not to cater to the beginner, but to elevate the beginner to a to an intermediate and to cater to the most advanced student because It was very clear the level was not rising in the Western world by catering to the largest client base, which was the beginner. And that's not to discriminate, but it is to say if I came back from Japan and my job was to elevate the level of bonsai and see how far I could go personally, having come from the mouth of the dragon of the best bonsai garden in the world at the hands of the best master in the world, I had huge expectations on my shoulders and I had even more expectations of myself. You had to focus on the highest level practitioners. Those are the people that mentor you in, in a club. Those are the people that organize and orchestrate exhibitions. Those are the people that are driving their communities forward and there was nothing for them. And so I continued to try and maintain the priority on my most advanced students in terms of the formation of education at Mirai. But No system is bulletproof. Nobody has been able to duplicate the apprentice model of Japan in a culture that does not educate in that fashion. I've had 12 apprentices over the 13 years I've been at Mirai. The longest that any one of them stayed was slightly over a year. I know other bonsai professionals in the Western world that have attempted to have apprentices. How successful has that situation been? I would say moderate to poor at best, right? Okay, so at this juncture where we're finally hitting this pinnacle moment of actually releasing to you the intention of 30 years of work, it's time to go back. It's time to move forward. It's time to come full circle, right? And that is where education on site at Marai is shifting to what I always wanted it to be, which is dedicated, focused study, one-on-one, both of our hands on the same tree, elevating your level as I continue to elevate my level, making the best trees in the world as the repercussion of our collaboration. This is the quintessential romantic painter's master studio. This is the way that art across the millennia of human existence has evolved. This is how boundaries have been pushed, how beauty has been created, and how culture has been represented. The master and the student working together on the same project. And it's from the mentality of taking all of the talented students that have studied at Mirai to this point and giving them that next step and that next level of capacity to build, evolve, and improve themselves. Now, what is the outcome? The outcome is going to be the best trees that Mirai's ever produced, beyond a shadow of a doubt. It'll be the best trees Mirai's ever produced. I'm older. I'm wiser. I understand my creativity. I've seen gajillions of bonsai. I've taught across the world. There's a reason that I keep coming back to my facility and improving it and and evolving it and investing in it because there's still something here that this facility can create that nobody else can create in the world. But beyond that, to be able to come and study without leaving your life, without going to Japan for a six-year apprenticeship, you know, in a culture that has changed dramatically and to be able to achieve that kind of level of proficiency and mastery through the guidance of absolutely impeccable material and absolutely on point instruction tailored and customized to the individual at that moment under those circumstances applied to that tree. You cannot get that anywhere else. It does not exist. Does not exist. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist in a workshop with six people doesn't exist in a in a three-day weekend it doesn't exist anywhere except for a focused master's studio applying the most cutting-edge knowledge to the work at hand now through this entire process you know you have this evolution of i have an evolution of myself there's an evolution of the trees that have been under this you know very loving but let's be honest rigorous journey there's an education that's evolved there's an accessibility to information that's evolved there's also this like environment that's evolved you know this environment in terms of a garden that started out as a 750 square foot cabin and a crushed pole barn that a tree had fallen on when I purchased it. Rain came pouring through the roof the first night I slept at Mirai. I really wished that I could have taken back the purchase of the property, but it was too late, you know? And then it was like, I woke up the next morning and onward, let's go. There's There's nowhere to go, but there's nowhere to go but forward, right? 10 years into the building of the garden, things were looking really, really good. And then suddenly, through a senseless act, senseless act, it, it it took me all the way back to the beginning again. What had been built up over ten years was almost in a in a single night taken back to the beginning, and that was a really tough time because, it, I had thought that I was you know in many ways done with one chapter of this ecosystem, and I could focus my energy and my efforts, and 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 suddenly it, it was really taken away, and I couldn't focus on the things i wanted to focus on and so there wasn't anything to be done nobody was going to fix it for me there nobody was going to change the circumstances that had been forced upon me onward onward let's go let's keep it going and and let's just not rebuild it the way that it was let's rebuild it in a way that it could be let's rebuild it in a way that will last let's rebuild it in a way that if the, the Yellowstone geyser, super geyser erupts and the Western United States is wiped off the face of the map, that there would still be a remnant of this garden and the love and attention and effort that's been put into this place. And I think what a lot of us don't necessarily understand about the creation of bonsai is how much the environment informs and influences the way and the outcome of the work that you do. It's everything. We are, as an organism, a filtration device. We take in stimuli and we bring to fruition the product of how that works through our unique chemistry, through the channels that we have in our mind that have been carved over decades of experience, and through the muscle memory in our body and our hands that give rise to shape and form and proportion and concept and context and culture and nature. We are informed by our environment. So to think that you can go to any environment and get out of it the same information and knowledge and outcome is incorrect. It's incorrect. And I know that because I've put myself in almost every environment possible and made a bonsai there. And what I learned is that changes everything. So when the necessity to rebuild my environment was upon me, I started to recognize that I wanted to build an environment that will bring out the best of every single individual that comes to work at this facility, under my guidance, with the most spectacular ancient trees we can possibly have the opportunity to work with. And in doing that, the facility is another aspect of how Marai and this idea that started washing rags in a stone sink turned into something that answered the call. The duty that my master put upon me when I left my apprenticeship, and he said, not a, a single student of mine has done something that's their own. Are you going to do something different? You should do something different. Well, now we're doing something different. And I guess the question is, you going to come join us.